Chapter Thirty of Vera by Elizabeth von Arnim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty. Also, she presently told her, approaching it with caution, for she was sure Lucy wouldn't like it, that as Everard was coming down next day, she thought it better to go back to Eaton Terrace in the morning. You two lovebirds won't want me," she said gaily, expecting and prepared for opposition. But really, as the child was getting well so quickly, there was no reason why she and Everard should be forced to begin practicing affection for each other here and now. Besides, in the small bag she had brought, there had been only a nightgown and her washing things, and she couldn't go on much longer on only that. To her surprise, Lucy not only agreed, but looked relieved. Miss Entwhistle was greatly surprised, and also greatly pleased. She adores him, she thought, and only wants to be alone with him. If Everard makes her as happy as all that, who cares what he is like to me or to anybody else in the world? And all the horrible, ridiculous things she had been thinking half an hour before were blown away like so many cobwebs. Just before half-past seven, when she was in her room on the other side of the house, tidying herself before facing Chesterton and the evening meal, she had reduced it to the merest skeleton of a meal, but Chesterton insisted on waiting, and all the usual ceremonies were observed. She was startled by the sound of wheels on the gravel beneath the window. It could only be Everard. He had come. "'Dear me,' said Miss Entwhistle to herself, and she who had planned to be gone so neatly before his arrival. It would be idle to pretend that she wasn't very much perturbed. She was. And the brush with which she was tidying her pretty gray hair shook in her hand. Dinner alone with Everard. Well, at least let her be thankful that he hadn't arrived a few minutes later and found her actually sitting in his chair. What would have happened if he had? Miss Entwhistle, for all her dismay, couldn't help laughing. Also, she encouraged herself for the encounter by remembering the doctor. Behind his authority she was secure. She had developed since Tuesday from an uninvited visitor into an indispensable adjunct. Not a nurse. Lucy hadn't at any moment been positively ill enough for a nurse, but an adjunct. She listened her brush suspended. There was no mistaking it. It was certainly Everard, for she heard his voice. The wheels of the cab, after the interval necessary for ejecting him, turned round again on the drive, crunching much less, and went away. And presently there was his well-known, deliberate, heavy tread coming up the uncarpeted staircase. Thank God for bedrooms, thought Miss Entwhistle fervently brushing. Where would one be without them and bathrooms? Places of legitimate lockings in. Places even the most indignant host was bound to respect. Now this wasn't the proper spirit in which to go down and begin getting fond of Everard, and giving him the opportunity of getting fond of her, as she herself presently saw. Besides, at that very moment Lucy was probably in his arms, all alight with joyful surprise, and if he could make Lucy so happy, there must be enough of good in him to fulfill the very mild requirements of Lucy's aunt. Just bare pleasantness, bare decency, would be enough. 
she stoutly assured herself of her certainty of being fond of Everard, if only he would let her. Sufficiently fond of him, that is. She didn't suppose any affection she was going to feel for him would ever be likely to get the better of her reason. Immediately on Wemyss's arrival, the silent house had burst forth into feverish life. Doors banged, feet ran. And now Lizzie came hurrying along the passage, and knocked at the door and told her breathlessly that dinner would be later, not for at least another half-hour, because Mr. Wemyss had come unexpectedly, and Cook had to. She didn't finish the sentence. She was in such a hurry to be off. Miss Entwhistle, her simple preparations being complete, had nothing left to do but sit in one of those wicker work chairs with thin, hard, cretonne-covered upholstery, which are sometimes found in inhospitable spare rooms, and wait. She found this bad for her morale. There wasn't a book in the room, or she would have distracted her thoughts by reading. She didn't want dinner. She would have best liked to get into the bed she hadn't yet slept once in, and stay there till it was time to go home. But her pride blushed scarlet at such a cowardly desire. She arranged herself, therefore, in the chair, and, since she couldn't read, tried to remember something to say over to herself instead, some poem, or verse of a poem, to take her attention off the coming dinner. And she was shocked to find, as she sat there with her eyes shut, to keep out the light that glared on her from the middle of the ceiling, that she could remember nothing but fragments, loose bits floating derelict round her mind, broken spars that didn't even belong, she was afraid, to any really magnificent whole. How Jim would have scolded her, Jim who forgot nothing that was beautiful. By nature cool, in pious habits bred, she looked on husbands with a virgin's dread. Now where did that come from, and why should it come at all? Such was the tone and manners of them all, no married lady at the house would call. And that, for instance, she couldn't remember ever having read any poem that could contain these lines. Yet she must have, she certainly hadn't invented them. And this, an absurd German thing, Jim used to quote and laugh at. Der Sultan winked. Zulike schwet, und seitzig sinlich abgenickt. Why should such a thing like that rise now to the surface of her mind and float round on it, while all the noble verse she had read and enjoyed, which would have been of such use and support to her at this juncture, was nowhere to be found, not a shred of it, in any corner of her brain? What a brain, thought Miss Entwhistle, disgusted sitting up very straight in the wicker-work chair, her hands folded in her lap, her eyes shut. What a contemptible, anemic brain, deserting her like this! Only able to throw up to the surface when stirred, out of all the store of splendid stuff put so assiduously into it during years and years of life, couplets. A sound she hadn't yet heard began to crawl round the house, and, even while she wondered what it was, increased and increased, till it seemed to her at last as if it must fill the universe and reach to Eaton Terrace. It was that gong, become active. Heavens, and what activity! She listened amazed. The time it went on, it went on and on, beating in her ears like the crack of doom. 
when the three great final strokes were succeeded by silence, she got up from her chair. The moment had come. A last couplet floated through her brain. Her brain seemed to clutch at it, betwixt the stirrup and the ground. She mercy sought, she mercy found. Now where did that come from? She asked herself distractedly, nervously passing one hand over her already perfectly tidy hair, and opening the door with the other. There was Wemyss, opening Lucy's door at the same moment. Oh, how do you do, Everard? said Miss Entwhistle, advancing with all the precipitate and affectionate politeness of one who is greeting not only a host but a nephew. Quite well, thank you, was Everard's slightly unexpected reply, but logical, perfectly logical. She held out her hand, and he shook it, and then proceeded past her to the bedroom door, which she had left open, and switched off the light, which she had left on. Oh, I'm sorry, said Miss Entwhistle. That, she thought, is one to Everard. She waited for his return, and then walked, followed by him in silence, down the stairs. How do you find Lucy? she asked, when they had got to the bottom. She didn't like Everard's silences. She remembered several of them during that difference of opinion he and she had had about where Christmas ought to be spent. They weighed on her, and she had the sensation of wriggling beneath them like an earwig beneath a stone, and it humiliated her to wriggle. "'Just as I expected,' he said, "'perfectly well.' "'Oh, no, not perfectly well,' exclaimed Miss Entwhistle, a vision of the blue-wrapped little figure sitting weakly up against the pillows that afternoon before her eyes. "'She is better today, but not nearly well.' "'You asked me what I thought, and I've told you,' said Wemyss. No, it wouldn't be an impulsive affection, hers and Everard's, she felt. It would, when it did come, be the result of slow and careful preparation, line upon line, here a little and there a little. Won't you go in? he asked, and she perceived he had pushed the dining-room door open and was holding it back with his arm while she, thinking this, lingered. That, she thought, is another to Everard. Her second bungle, first the light left on in her room, now keeping him waiting. She hurried through the door, and then, vexed with herself for hurrying, walked to her chair with almost an excess of deliberation. The doctor, she began, when they were in their places, and Chesterton was hovering in readiness to snatch the cover off the soup, the instant Wemyss had finished arranging his table-napkin. I wish to hear nothing about the doctor, he interrupted. Miss Entwhistle gave herself pains to be undaunted, and said, with almost an excess of naturalness, "'But I'd like to tell you.' "'It is no concern of mine,' he said. "'But you're her husband, you know,' said Miss Entwhistle, trying to sound pleasant. "'I gave no orders,' said Wemyss. "'But he had to be sent for, the child.' "'So you said on the telephone.' and I told you then you were taking a great deal on yourself, unasked. Miss Entwhistle hadn't supposed that anyone ever talked like this before servants. She now knew that she had been mistaken. "'He's your doctor,' said Wemyss. "'My doctor?' "'I regard him entirely as your doctor.' "'I wish, Everard,' said Miss Entwhistle politely, after a pause, 
that I understood. You sent for him on your own responsibility, unasked. You must take the consequences. I don't know what you mean by the consequences, said Miss Entwhistle, who was getting further and further away from that beginning of affection for Everard to which she had braced herself. The bill, said Wemyss. Oh, said Miss Entwhistle. She was so much surprised that she could only ejaculate just that. Then the idea that she was in the act of being nourished by Wemyss's soup seemed to her so disagreeable that she put down her spoon. "'Certainly, if you wish it,' she said. "'I do,' said Wemyss. The conversation flagged. Presently, sitting up very straight, refusing to take any notice of the variety and speed of the thoughts rushing round inside her, and determined to behave as if she weren't minding anything. She said in a very clear little voice, which she strove to make sound pleasant, "'Did you have a good journey down?' "'No,' said Wemyss, waving the soup away. This as an answer, though no doubt strictly truthful, was too bald for much to be done with it. Miss Entwhistle therefore merely echoed, as she herself felt foolishly, "'No?' and Wemyss confirmed his first reply by once more saying, No. The conversation flagged. I suppose, she said then, making another effort, the train was very full. As this was not a question, he was silent and allowed her to suppose. The conversation flagged. Why is there no fish? he asked Chesterton, who was offering him cutlets. There was no time to get any, sir said Chesterton. He might have known that, thought Miss Entwhistle. You will tell the cook that I consider I have not dined unless there is fish. Yes, sir, said Chesterton. Goose, thought Miss Entwhistle. It was easier and far less nerve-wracking to regard him indulgently as a goose than to let oneself get angry. He was like a great cross schoolboy, she thought, sitting there being rude but unfortunately a schoolboy with power. He ate the cutlets in silence. Miss Entwhistle declined them. She had missed her chance, she thought, when the cab was beneath her window, and all she had to do was to lean out and say, Wait a minute! But then Lucy, ah yes, Lucy. The minute she thought of Lucy, she felt she absolutely must be friends with Everard. Incredible as it seemed to her, and always had seemed from the first, that Lucy should love him. There it was. She did. It couldn't be possible to love him without any reason. Of course not. The child knew. The child was wise and tender. Therefore, Miss Entwhistle made another attempt at resuscitating conversation. Watching her opportunity when Chesterton's back was receding down the room towards the outstretched arm at the end, for she didn't mind what Wemyss said quite so acutely if Chesterton wasn't looking. She said, with as natural a voice as she could manage, I'm very glad you've come, you know. I'm sure Lucy has missed you very much. Lucy can speak for herself, he said. Then Miss Entwhistle concluded that conversation with Everard was too difficult. Let it flag. She couldn't, whatever he might feel able to do, say anything that wasn't polite in the presence of Chesterton. She doubted whether, even if Chesterton were not there, she would be able to. And yet, continued politeness 
appeared in the face of his answers impossible. She had best be silent, she decided, though to withdraw into silence was of itself a humiliating defeat. When she was little, Miss Entwhistle used to be rude. Between the ages of five and ten, she frequently made faces at people, but not since then. Ten was the latest. After that, good manners descended upon her and had enveloped her ever since. Nor had any occasion arisen later in her life in which she had even been tempted to slough them. Urbane herself, she dwelt among urbanites, kindly, she everywhere met kindliness. But she did feel now that it might. If only she could so far forget herself, afford her solace were she able to say, straight at him, Wemyss. Just that word, no more. For some reason she was dying to call him Wemyss without any mister. She was sure that if she might only say that one word, straight at him, she would feel better. As much relieved as she did when she was little and made faces. Dreadful, dreadful. She cast down her eyes, overwhelmed by the nature of her thoughts, and said no thank you to the pudding. It is clear, thought Wemyss, and her refusal to eat, where Lucy gets her sulking from. No more words were spoken till, dinner being over, he gave the order for coffee in the library. I'll go and say good-night to Lucy, said Miss Entwhistle, as they got up. You'll be so good as to do nothing of the sort, said Wemyss. I beg your pardon? inquired Miss Entwhistle, not quite sure she could have heard right. At this point they were both just in front of Vera's portrait on their way to the door, and she was looking at each of them, impartially strangling her smile. I wish to speak to you in the library, said Wemyss. But suppose I don't wish to be spoken to in the library, leapt to the tip of Miss Entwhistle's tongue. There, however, was Chesterton, checking, calming. So she said instead, do. End of chapter 30